0: This
2: is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
3: This week, we have a bonus uh, Masters in Business edition. It is our premiere episode of Masters in Business Live. We recorded a live show uh, in the Bloomberg headquarters. It was in front of a live audience, broadcast live on television and radio. Uh, People asked me, weren't you nervous about doing this? And to be honest... I didn't have time to get nervous. I just jumped right into our questions. My guest was Ray Dalio of Bridgewater. And dear Lord, he was just spectacular. He knows exactly what he thinks. Uh, He understands his own philosophy. And he knows how to articulate it in a way with tremendous clarity and transparency. Uh, He spoke for about an hour, uh, or at least took questions from me for about an hour. Then we opened it up to the audience, and we did another 30 minutes of Q&A. And I got to give Ray huge kudos. He sat and signed a copy of his book for every single person who was in the audience. There were over 100 people there. He didn't have to do that. It was just charming and delightful. I could ramble about how much fun that day was, but rather than listen to me babble, why don't we simply say, the premiere uh, episode of Masters in Business Live, With Bridgewater's Ray Dalio. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. So I I have to admit to cheating a little bit. When when we first proposed the idea of Masters in Business Live, Al and Dave were very supportive. And I said, I'm going to bring in a ringer with Ray Dalio so I really don't have a whole lot of work to do. Uh, I assume most of the viewing and, and uh, audience present knows who Reid is, but let me just give you a quick uh, version of his background. He is the founder, co-chairman, and co-CIO of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund, managing over $160 billion in assets for institutional clients. According to Forbes, Bridgewater has made more money for their clients than any other fund in history. Uh, He is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Principles for Life and Work, and most recently, his new book is Principles of Big Debt Crises. Ray Dalio, thank you for being our first guest on Masters in Business Live. Let's start with the reboot of Bridgewater, which you describe in great detail in the first book. Which came about after a not so great 1982 for you. In fact, you describe it as disastrous. What happened in 1982?
2: Well, you know, I, I formed Bridgewater in '75, so '82 mm-hmm. is like seven years later.
3: That, that's the reboot. Well, yeah, kinda... that's the
2: reboot, right? Um, and I had in 1980, '79, '80, I had calculated that Amer- that American banks had went. Way more money to emerging countries than those countries were going to pay back, and it was about 250% of their bank capital. And so we were going to have a big bank banking crisis, and I thought that was going to happen, and I got a lot of attention for, for that. Um, and then in August uh, 82, uh, Mexico defaulted, and there was a sequence of other defaults, and there was a big debt crisis. Um, and I thought that that was going to cause an economic crisis. And I couldn't have been more wrong. That was the exact bottom of the stock market when Mexico defaulted. And anyway, I received um, attention at the time. I was on uh, Wall Street Week. And I was on, uh, asked to testify to Congress. And, and I was wrong. And I uh, had, I think at the time, maybe eight people who worked for me. I had to let them all go. And I uh, lost money for me. I lost money for clients. I had to um, borrow $4,000 from my dad because I didn't have really enough money even to take care of my family at that point. That was very painful. But it was the most valuable thing probably that happened in my life, certainly one of those, because it changed my approach to thinking, because it made me start to think, you know, how do I know I'm right? How do I continue to take risk? and not go through these mistakes. And it made me uh, change a lot. Like, I wanted to find the smartest people I could who would disagree with me. I wanted to build an idea meritocracy in which independent thinkers would challenge each other. And and I wanted to uh, deal with risk. How do I um, maintain the returns, but diversify and do certain things to deal with risk? And it was from that point really on that everything started to change. So that was my terrible experience. And I think that that's, by the way, one of those lessons. Like, there was a book that my son uh, gave me in 2014, uh, Joseph Campbell, Hero of a Thousand Faces. And he describes about how that crashing occurs. And that uh, changes. Do you have a metamorphosis? So the whole approach to learning from mistakes and painful mistakes and making the most out of them and writing principles down. Um, In other words, recipes for how do you deal with the circumstances, learn the lesson, write those principles down. This is the thing that I would recommend to, you know, everybody, write them down. And I learned also that by being able to write them down clearly enough that they could be expressed in what were then called equations or now algorithms Mm -hmm. that allowed me to make decisions and us to make decisions in in, in a very powerful way. So that experience was really the turning point.
3: And that's very abstract. I want to describe some of the ideas and products that came out of that post-82. You describe in your early um, history some of the products that you had a role in the creation of. TIPS, the inflation-protected treasury bonds, the U.S. dollar futures index, the entire concept of risk parity. You're very humble in saying you had only a little bit to do with the Chinese stock market, Creation, but I know you consulted with very senior people there and helped that come about. And what I think is the least known thing about you, but the most fascinating, you helped to engineer chicken McNuggets. Explain <laughs> that to us because it's absolutely <laughs> intriguing.
2: Well, I, I traded commodities then, back then. I mean, that was my big thing. And I really uh, learned, you know, uh, how to make chicken and how much feed, what, what a chick cost, um, how uh, soybeans were grown, how they competed with cotton and corn, and that whole mechanics. I liked that whole mechanical thing. Um, and at the time, that, uh, and, and McDonald's was a client of mine at the time, and they wanted to uh, uh, come out with this Chicken McNuggets. Uh, But it was very volatile. Prices were volatile at the time. And they were worried about um, whether they can get stable menu prices or they would have the volatility and that would be disrupted. And I had a chicken processing uh, producer. was, I think, the largest at the time and a client. And I could engineer um, the ability to lock in the feed prices because basically the cost of a chick is not much relative to the cost of the feed. And you have futures contracts on that. And I was able to work a deal so that um, that chicken producer could get the McDonald's contract. And McDonald's could get a stable price by engineering how they could do the hedge to be able to do that. So So that was what I did.
3: The word engineering comes up a lot for a person who's not an engineer. Um, And I, I was very much reminded of that in one of the first Long form videos you did, how the economic machine works. So, first, what's the engineering background for the overall economy, and what motivated you to put that together in a video and release it to the world?
2: Well, the one thing that I learned over the years is you know, like everything has, it's every effect, everything that happened has a reason it happened, cause effect relationships. And these things happen over and over again. So, whenever I got surprised by something, uh, it was usually because of something that didn't happen in my lifetime before, but it happened, you know, like these financial crises and so on. And, I, and what I did is I went back and I, saw, I started to see that if you start to see everything as happening over and over again, and then you study the cause-effect mechanics behind that at a nitty-gritty level. You learn how reality works, and then you can write your principles for dealing with reality, which are the recipes essentially for making good decisions. So, to me, it you know history has shown like the same things happen over and over again for the same cause-effect relationship. So that debt book that you're referring to, you know, it's, it's a good example. Um, if we don't spend time understanding the mechanics and the cause-effect relationships we just argue with each other about what should be done and it's like two doctors who have not spent time understanding and agreeing on how the body works arguing about uh, you know what should be done for the body and so the reason i did that uh, a video how the economic machine works and the reason that i did the book and the reason that i wrote principles is to, to put on the table what I think that those cause-effect relationships are so we can understand the timeless and universal mechanics behind it. And that's been invaluable to me because once I understand that mechanics and we could test it, we could test it in all time frames, we could test it in all countries, and we could understand it, and then with that framework we know how to deal with it. And nowadays being able to deal with it with algorithms and technology means you can deal with it all over the world and it's been a powerful force. So it's evolved from those experiences. like I remember the first time I was clerking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange um, in nineteen seventy one um, I was just between college and uh, going to business school. <clears throat> and uh, the stock mo- and uh, we have a dollar crisis. We can't pay for um, our goods in Europe. Nobody's accepting dollars. and um, on uh, August fifteenth Richard Nixon gets on the television and he basically says we're severing the connection between dollar and gold. Back then, uh, money was like a uh, check. I mean, check in a checkbook has no value. It only what the money is uh, has value. And so it would get you money, would get you gold, and that was, and it was a breakdown. So it was a default. And I remember thinking um, when I was going to walk in on Monday morning to the New York Stock Exchange, this is a big crisis. And I thought the stock market would fall a lot. And the stock market went through the roof. And I, and, and, and I realized, I, I said, well, did you have currency breakdowns before? And then I was, I studied uh, currency breakdowns that happened in this system. And I realized why, when you devalue the currency, it's bullish and how that whole thing works, that I didn't understand. So it's that perspective about mechanics. Do we understand? Can we agree on the mechanics of
3: how it works? Because once you can do that, then you know how to deal with it. So you mentioned principles. Before we talk about big debt crisis, let's talk about the book a bit. It came out last year. It became a New York Times bestseller. And you kind of went on a not-quite-world tour on the book, you said that experience was really educational. What did you learn speaking to people about the book principles?
2: Well, I I didn't like I didn't like I never liked being in, in above the uh, in the press or in the, above the radar. You're,
3: you don't do a lot of media historically, like,
2: I, I, right?
3: Although you're beginning to flower now that you're an author.
2: I'm, I'll do the I'll do the I'll, I'll do this, in, in my fa- I'm in a phase of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the transition from my second phase to my third phase. And um, so the way I look at it is uh, in the first phase of life, one is dependent on others, one is learning, one's basically a student. Um, In the second phase of life, one is working, others are dependent on them, and one is trying to be successful. As you get to my stage in life, which is a transition from the second to third stage, the way I think it is, The joy is no longer as much to be successful as to pass along what you've learned that has helped you be successful. The joy is in seeing other people be successful. Mm -hmm. And because these principles have been written down over a long period of time, and they're kind of the recipes, um, I wanted to pass those along. And that's what I'm in the process of doing. And then I'll phase out. But to answer your question in terms of the surprises, like I thought that was going to be a very uncomfortable experience. I, I thought even the communications would be bad. And I have found such a joy in the interactions that I've had with people in the, uh, in the public and, and so on. Um, so it's been a, a really pleasurable, good experience, a sense of relationships. And I, I think people uh, are now looking for principles. And I want to emphasize, forget my principles. They don't have to be my principles. But I do think that everybody would benefit enormously by being crystal clear about their principles. I want to pass this, this thing along. Number one, I want to pass this along. That if every time you're encountering your uh, situation, um, at that moment or right after, you write down the, qu- the criteria for making your decisions in words, and that allows you to communicate with others, allows you to clarify your decision making. And you could take in from others what the best criteria is for those circumstances in the future. That is invaluable because uh, in all your relationships with people, no, people will know what your principles are, how you will interact with them and why. And then you can go even beyond that to convert those into equations and help them make the decision making I think that's a powerful thing in the future and I uh, so I wanted to pass along mine but I also wanted to more importantly pass along the importance of other people doing that and that's what I'm in the phase of there are two things uh, so I did the life and work principles and now I'm working on uh, economic and investment principles
3: That'll be the third, third book in the series.
2: Yeah. So, the middle one was sort of an accident.
3: I mean, well, we'll get to the middle one in a moment. Before we leave principles, I have to ask about what I think is the most interesting approach you bring to managing a firm, which you call being radically open-minded, having radical transparency, and bringing about thoughtful disagreement. Tell me how that developed, because... That doesn't seem to be the way most of corporate America operates. That's our edge. Your edge is thoughtful
2: is disagreement. Is doing that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So let me give you one, one sentence. I want an idea of meritocracy. In other words, I want the best ideas to
3: win. As opposed to where it comes from.
2: I, right. I don't have to be, the, it doesn't have to come from me. I just want the best decisions to be made. Um, and I want to. What I want is to have meaningful work and meaningful relationships. A meaningful work meaning you're on a mission together, and those relationships are are deep and meaningful, and they're high quality. They're a reward in and of themselves, mm-hmm. and they make an organization more effective. So, uh, an idea meritocracy. I'll get it out in one sentence. An idea meritocracy in which the goals are meaningful work and meaningful relationships through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. Radical truthfulness means say what you're thinking, and others will say the same, and uh, let's get away from the behind the scenes and the politics of it. And the radical transparency means most people can see most everything so that they can form the opinions of what's going on themselves, independent thinking. And that builds trust. First of all, it cuts through the notion of um, politics and bureaucracy. Um, by everybody being able to see most things, you it, you build trust. You and you're dealing with most things without the blur of hiding stuff that's in people's heads. And in the investment business, um, I think it's uh, particularly special important. I think it's also in entrepreneurs it's especially important because you um, you have to have the independent thinking. In the markets, um, the markets discount the consensus. So whatever the consensus is, is in the price. So in order to be successful in the markets, you have to think differently than from the consensus. And you have to be right. And in order to have that, you have to have independent thinkers. Mm -hmm. And when you have those differences in independent thinkers, if you can work that through, through thoughtful disagreement, you have the art of thoughtful disagreement, Mm -hmm. if you work that through, you raise your probabilities of getting at the best answer. And, and that's been a very, very powerful thing. And it also right. builds trust, and it builds better relationships. Because trust comes from you know, uh, operating in organizations that have this politics. It's all behind the scenes. Everybody gives them high fives, and they're all happy, and so on, and they talk behind each other's backs. Right. So that's been, um, it's been a big deal for us.
3: That, that's your edge. So let's, um, let's go forward to the new book, which uh, just came out, Navigating Big Debt Crises. You mentioned you decided to write that because a couple of folks asked you to uh, put it together, Ben Bernanke, Tim Geithner, other people. I I really like the way the book is assembled. It's broken into three parts, the template for what the big debt cycles look like. Then you use three detailed cases, the Great Financial Crisis, the Great Depression, and the Weimar Republic. And then you, you put together 48 case studies from... The past century. So let let's start with the first one, the template. What makes all of these very different crises follow the same mechanical sort of cycle? How how is that even possible?
2: Well, everything's got these cause effect relationships, and the way you know, in a nutshell, I'll make try to make it simple. Um, there's productivity over a period of time our living standards rise because we learn how to do things better and the output per man hour worked increases and that moves at a fairly um, it'll go up and down its pace but by, by and large it's not what causes volatility and around that we have two debt cycles we have a short-term debt cycle which we understand because that's the business cycle you know you're in yeah, a recession, central banks ease monetary policy, they change the um, relationship between short term interest rates, long term interest rates, asset prices, put liquidity in, and then um, you have debt growth. De- credit is spending power, mm-hmm. so when you extend credit, you are extending um, uh, spending power and when and that's good for the economy when that credit can be paid back and what it does of course, is it pushes asset prices up while levels of debt continue to increase and at that part of the cycle people and everybody sort of um, conservative about that and it pays back but asset prices rise. When you say
3: pay back you mean the borrowers have the ability to service that debt even as asset prices rise.
2: That's right and everybody wins and that's good credit growth and it's a wonderful thing. Um, Then as you get later in the cycle It's a very self-reinforcing cycle because as asset prices go up, you have more collateral, people are more confident, they believe asset prices will continue to rise, they become a little bit less careful in terms of that kind of lending, they extrapolate that into the future. And then, um, and of course, as um, then there's the shadow banking system. Mm-hmm. There's always a shadow banking system.
3: Really? Not just 08, 09? Oh, no, the,
2: all the time there's always a shadow banking system. There's a shadow banking system now. Um, in other words, there's the banks, and they're re- regulated and controlled within their parameters. And then outside of those banks are other kind of new forms of lending and capital markets and, and so on, or it could be online, it could be different forms. And there's a pressure to develop that outside of the system's shadow banking because the more regulated, more controlled one doesn't make as much money and so on. And so by being at the periphery, you can use higher amounts of leverage. You can uh, do certain things. And so that grows. So you develop this shadow banking system, which is not regulated. And also investors want to go to because they'll give you a bit higher return. Like, I mean, even think about how the money market funds develop because Mm -hmm. by comparison to banks and so on. And so that develops outside. And it becomes so self-reinforcing because everybody makes money at it and also they believe it because when things go up, you know, everybody thinks things will go up.
3: So so less regulation, more risk, better return. That's right. And that's late in the cycle. And then what happens?
2: And, And, of course, what that does is all that demand and liquidity causes... Rates to come down, liquidity go out. So like we see in this cycle. Um, Last cycle, we brought interest rates basically down to zero, practically down. That wasn't good enough. So central banks bought $15 trillion of assets push the asset prices up, push liquidity into the system. And so asset prices go up and people extrapolate. And the funny thing about it is, as you get to later in the cycle, when there is more debt, and you know that you're coming closer to the end of the cycle, there is more of an extrapolating in the market prices of that moving on. So if you look at what the discounted growth rates are, late in the cycle they become high, they're difficult to meet, and then you get the changing, you get the tightening of monetary policy. Tightening of monetary policy has its effect first on asset prices, and then it becomes a self-reinforcing effect. And that's the normal business cycle, a normal sort of debt cycle, because debt is credit, and credit is buying power, and and economy runs on that. Um, Then you have this longer-term debt cycle, which is the accumulation of those other cycles. Because uh, the world wants to be long, the world wants to be leveraged long, they want everything to go up. We all do, you know, central banks, better times, assets go up, businesses, activity, and so on, and there's a strong desire to uh, push credit. And so the limitations that start to encounter is when you get close to zero interest rates, like we hit zero interest rates, mm-hmm. that changes the game. And when you have, uh, and then the, the the you need to print money and buy assets. That happened in 1932. So 29 to 32, interest rates hit zero. The c- central banks need to buy assets. They buy assets. They cause that carried to 1937. Very similar situation that we 've been in, and so when we carry that from um, two thousand and eight and nine then and then you come into about you know a year year and a half ago, we start to tighten the monetary policy, we pull that in, we have higher rates of death growth. that thing goes on and on all over. Uh, in all countries, that same basic dynamic. There's a lot more on that in the book. I mean, we don't have the time to so, go through. So let
3: it. me let me pull you forward to today. Given that these things are cyclical, they repeat. They look very similar. What parallels would you draw from history to today? What what era does today most remind you of? What what's the most intriguing aspect of the current setup? Well, the most
2: the most recent period that's analogous of this is is the uh, late. Uh, uh, like Let's say if you take 1937. So why do I say that? I'd say um, we're um, well along in the business cycle, the short term debt cycle. We're in the seventh or eighth inning of that. Central banks are tightening monetary policy. Uh, that's where we are in that cycle. Um, similar to then, uh, when we have, uh, because of the printing of money and because technologies and other reasons, we have a greater amount of um, polarity, political polarity. I think this is um, a, a, an important, important issue. Um, And that political polarity causes populism around the world. In other words, a strong individual to come in, get control of that situation while they're having that type of polarity. Um, So the word populism, for example, in developed countries was not widely used until you go back to the 30s until more recently. Now it's, of course, common. And and we're also late in the longer-term debt cycle, meaning if you were to turn down if the economy was to turn down, um, you, the ability to deal with that with lowering interest rates is very limited, and the ability to deal with that with quantitative easing is very limited for a variety of reasons. So it's very much like the late thir- 30s. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't find a time that in which both of those circumstances exist. Populism together with that differences, wealth gaps and so on, and then also... We have a situation which is quite similar, I think. In we have rising a rising power in the form of China.
3: Let's talk about that because in the 30s you had Italy and Japan and Germany rising to challenge the existing powers. How parallel is a growing China today to that to that era?
2: Um, I, th- I th- think it's a, it's not only analogous to that era, um, but there's a concept. Um, uh, called The Thucydides Trap, by the way, that uh, in an excellent book uh, by Graham Allison uh, uh, called Destined for War. He goes through, but it, you can study it. Destined for War. Well, he's dealing with China relationship. And, uh, uh, but if, another excellent book, by the way, is um, um, uh, Paul Kennedy's uh, The Rise and Decline of Great Powers. And if you study history, I've made a point now to study history over the last 500 years very, very carefully. Uh, what you see is that in the last 500 years, there have been 16 times where a, great, a power um, comes to challenge an existing power, a rising power. So like you say, in Germany, um, in, within Europe or Japan within Asia, that was the nature of, of, of that beast. That means that there's certainly rivalry. So a trade war, a comparable power creates an issue.
3: So and, 16 previous examples of a rising power.
2: Twelve of which led to um, actual shooting wars. So, so we I'm have not a saying warning... we're going to get into a shooting war. But I am saying that um, the history has shown that when you have wars, after a war you have a dominant power and you have periods of peace because you have a dominant power. Um, after World War II, um, the United States was powerful both economically and also it had a monopoly on nuclear power. Um, and so as a result of that power, the, uh, you know, the United Nations is in New York, the World Bank and the IMF are in Washington, D.C., because it determined that. And in history, um, then when you have the rising power to challenge the existing power, you have elements of conflict. I'm saying, I don't want to overdo this, but I am saying that we are entering an era in which um, anybody who reads history and policymakers uh, around the world uh, recognize this, that this issue um, with China rising means that there are naturally going to be conflicts. and How do you resolve conflicts in the world market? You don't go to a court system. There's not a rule of law in the world that becomes dominant. So there is more of a rule of power, and, then, and that's a dynamic. So all I'm saying is if I was to pick, you asked me when I w- is most analogous. And I would say that the 1930s, where you take that period, the late 1930s, is an analogous period, if you were to say cause-effect relationships, because how much power do we have in terms of monetary policy? How much populism do we have? Analogous. These are important things. And then also, um, you know, where are we in the economic cycle? How are asset prices priced? and so on. So, so, it, so it looks anal- the most analogous period. You can go back to periods and other periods in history, and you can find also other analogous types of periods. But um, that's what it looks well, like.
3: Well, well, we know how the 1930s ended, and it wasn't well. With World War II, what's the implication? Are we at risk for a um, shooting conflict with China? Or is this going to take um, more in the um, uh, terms of an economic or competitive I I
2: I think that what our circumstances lead to has a lot to do with how we all deal with each other given those circumstances. In other words... Do
3: you mean us individually? Do you mean between President Xi and President
2: Trump? Between, uh, let's say, history has shown that how conflict is handled is the the big thing. Um, So uh, there's a tendency of polarity to cause greater conflict, and then hard times to cause even worse conflict. In, in those cases, um, you, you even had in, in, in Germany and Italy, uh, Japan, um, and Spain, you had four democracies that chose to be uh, autocracies. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the would somebody get control of the situation because it was fairly the the chaos of the conflict it became worse and so there was conflict within countries and there was conflict between countries and I think the real question is you know can you have thoughtful disagreement can you have strong negotiations but with uh, the notion of reaching whether they are compromises or paths that are, uh, uh, you know, not damaging type of um, conflicts, I don't know. This is beyond me. But I'm, uh, I am saying that um, I think I can't, I can't tell you whether you go to war. I think that, um, and that shooting war. I would say that uh, uh, it would be to not consider it as a possibility and not be worried about it. Uh, internal conflict and external conflict would be dangerous Mm -hmm. in other words i think it's the worry and the attention paid to it and the notion of uh, you know how do we work together how do we work together as a country can is there is there an america Mm -hmm. that has common values and we're pursuing a common mission and 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 what is the how do you deal with that polarity issue you know i mean um there are um, issues in terms of how effectively capitalism is working for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's working, I think, less effectively. I'm a capitalist. I'm a professional capitalist. I believe in the system, but as it, how do you deal with all of those? Those are education, equal education. These types of things have become fundamental and they're, they're, they're big challenges. Anyway, we're getting... Well, before
3: we move from that, you we're getting point away out, from markets. You, and, you, But you point out in the book that every time there's a financial crisis, we seem to run into issues of economic inequality and widening gap, widening gap between the haves and have-nots. Is that part of the machinery? Is that something that always happens when there's a financial crisis?
2: History has shown that Um, In places where there's a big disparity in conditions, Mm -hmm. at the same time as you have an economic downturn, there's greater levels of conflict. Now, you could be a poor country in which there's not much difference and you have a
0: downturn and you have less conflict. Or you could be a rich country. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company – just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more.
2: Uh, you know, Switzerland is going to have less conflict down there because they're not that same element of disparity. Mm -hmm. So history has shown that when there is that and there's a downturn, there's more like there's more to argue about.
3: Mm -hmm. Interesting. We're going to open this up for questions from the audience. Um, But first, we're going to do a speed round. Five questions in in a minute. Uh, And then we'll and then we'll do Q&A. So let's let's jump right into this. Tell us the most important thing that people don't know about you.
2: Most important? That I have uh, a great wife for uh, uh, 40-plus years who is a a force of nature that I'm crazy about and that is also doing amazing things in her world.
3: Um, You mentioned a few books. Give us your favorite book you would suggest people should read, outside of your own.
2: Uh, I would... I would say Lessons from History. It's 104 pages. Um, Will
3: Will Durant's is that? The
2: Durant's wrote that, who are the great, one of probably the greatest historians, wrote 5,000 Years of Five. They distilled it down into 104 pages. Fabulous. I would say Hero of a Thousand Faces, The, the Life Cycles, which is great. And I particularly, Campbell. Joseph Campbell. And then I would particularly say that now they should read, uh, which I think is a masterpiece, Paul Kennedy's The Rise and Decline of Great Powers.
3: So we have some millennials in the room. If a millennial came up to you and said they were interested in a career in finance, what sort of advice would you give them?
2: Well, let's see. I think the the most important thing is, as you're young, is to realize that your success comes from knowing how to deal with your not knowing more than it comes from anything you know. So how to be open-minded, how to take in the best of the around there. Don't think that you're... Be humble, take in the best, know how to deal with not knowing, and then you'll be more successful.
3: And um, what is your favorite philanthropic focus these days?
2: Um, for me personally, it's uh, two things: um, ocean exploration and um, um, particularly microfinance.
3: Microfinance, interesting.
2: Microfinance and ocean exploration. Because and- I basically believe I believe this issue is a big issue, and I think that you know the fundamentals are. Can, uh, can, Blessings that I've had. Can I have a family that's a good family take care of me? That, that's a very important thing, and sometimes that's difficult. Um, education. I was able to go to a good public school. You know, Can you have good public education? And then a few bucks to uh, get you going in terms of being able to make decisions. I've seen on, on microfinance. I'm a supporter of Grameen America from, from the beginning. Uh, for every dollar that I give to that, um, there's $12 in lending that gets paid back in the, uh, in, uh, in the first 10 years. And it just keeps going round and round, and it becomes self-financing. So I think that's um, an important area. And then I, I'm uh, you know, thrilled about ocean exploration because I think it's our biggest asset, and it's, and it's thrilling.
3: And my final question, what do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew 40-plus years ago when you were beginning?
2: Uh, I guess it would be the same thing, which is, I wish I knew how to deal with my not knowing, how to, how to bring in the best, how to deal with that thoughtful disagreement, to be radically open-minded, to be um, audacious in going after my goals, to try to do great things, but to know that I could change my risk-return ratio by being able to raise my confidence by the art of thoughtful disagreement and to diversify effectively my bets so that I could uh, not have anyone that dominates my returns and uh, you know, to place those bets with uh, both aggressiveness and humility.
3: All right. So let's open this up to the audience. I know there's a couple of handheld mics running around. Uh, what questions do we have from the audience anywhere? Right over here uh, on the corner. I told you there was a plant. <laughs> I'm not a plant, but I've always <laughs> wanted to ask you this. Um, thank you for thank you for this, by the way, Barry. This has been great. Um, you've been one of the most successful funds ever, maybe the most successful. A lot of funds that have had success have eventually either kicked out their investors and run house money or have drastically limited how much outside capital they would taken or had become family offices through the years. Uh, is that something that you ever considered and why... Have you completely gone the other way and grown the firm um, given how successful you've been?
2: Um, Good question. We're, 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 there's alpha there's alpha and there's beta. so I'm, this is going to probably be yeah, a little bit of a technical uh, answer to your question first. But um, an al, uh, beta, which is what is your strategic asset allocation mix? You're timeless and universal. Um, there's a lot of liquidity, a lot of capacity. And uh, so th- those are the only two accounts we've taken. Alpha, we have capped our alpha. We, uh, I, I don't think, you know, we we just don't take in uh, new money that is capped. Um, and then the way that we do it is, yes, we we, we invest a lot in there, but there's 160 billion dollars of total assets invested, and we haven't had the need to not invest for other people. So I don't expect that. Th- I have no. Expectation that that would change.
3: I saw a hand back in the corner over there.
0: Hi, um, I've luckily been lucky enough to read this uh, book already, which is very uh, very entertaining. Could I just ask you to uh, talk in a little more detail about one of the uh, shortest, most punchy sentences in the uh, in the book, which was in the end. Policymakers always print. Uh, are we confident that they will indeed always print? Uh, might there be any exceptions? Uh, and yeah, go ahead.
2: Well, it just takes how much pain it gets them to print. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, what I'm saying is when you have a debt crisis and it keeps going and it becomes painful, you'll print money. When you hit zero interest rates, um, then you. Print that—that's been true throughout history, and um, you know there's not a case that I know of that's that, that's different from that because it's the better alternative. So yeah, uh, the, in the end, you know, when it gets bad enough, they'll always print.
3: Some a question over here, and we'll try and get through as many questions as we can. Which is,
2: by the way, an interesting consideration if you take longer term. Not immediate, but you think of what, what does that mean longer term in terms of a reserve currency? If you start to think where are we in the cycle <clears throat> and, and, and you start to extrapolate what, you know, what is going to have to be sold. The United, United States is going to have to sell a lot more debt in the world because of the larger elements of budget deficits. You're going to have to sell more. And from a buyer of that, that uh, what, it, what a bond is, is a promise to get a lot of currency. That's what it is, you get currency. And, so, and we're in a, in a fiat monetary system. So if you take, you know, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 years later, um, I think it'll um, increasingly be um, an issue. You know, what is the currency? What is the storeholder wealth? We're, you know, those are elements that lurk in the back not immediately as uh, as as issues. Next Thanks. question. Uh, with, uh, with on on that path of the maintaining power, uh, global economic power, you know, many of the economies have been on a stimulus that stimuli that uh, can be considered a little bit of a steroids. You know, you, you mentioned that for those economies, you know, to succeed and remain in remaining power, um, they have to keep the growth going. So, uh, given the current scenario and. Uh, the trade agreements that we're trying to reach—do you have an expectation of which economy will fold first? Um, you, I, I don't have it, and I, I think that Europe is um, ha, is, a, is an area of conflict. And there are issues that exist within Europe, but there, you know. Um, so I—I I don't know that I have. Uh, I would say when we have the downturn, uh, it'll be a, a an issue of you know. F- continuity, cohesiveness. I think Europe will have a greater amount of challenge because they don't have a common fiscal policy. They don't have unity within the countries. They don't have unity between the countries. And they have big structural issues. Um, So I would say that Europe probably would be the most strained.
3: I saw a hand back over
2: there.
1: Hi, it's Henry from Princeton Global Partners. Question is. In the long term, what do you think the U.S. market will be?
3: In what? In the long term, U.S. markets, where do you see them going? Um, I, I, I think U.S. markets,
2: you mean in terms of size or valuation or?
3: In terms of performance.
2: I think that uh, we're closer, we're not, we're cl- long term. let's say five or ten years, I think we have squeezed a lot out of the U.S. market. I think we're in an environment that we are going to have low returns going forward for um, a very, very long time. Because um, if you look at um, returns, there is the present value effect of uh, lowering interest rates and putting liquidity into the system. And that has largely run its course. And all assets compete with each other. So you could almost look at the yields of those assets. What's the yield on cash? The yield on cash, the yield on bonds, and then assets, um, equities, and so on, the risk premiums of each of those. And then that carries through to private equity, carries through to real estate, and so on. And because so much money has come out and interest rates were squeezed, we've brought asset prices up to very high levels. Um, in a store context, but not relative to cash. They haven't gone to such extraordinarily high levels. Um, and now in that tightening, as we're raising cash rates um, and the spreads between short-term interest rates and uh, the longer-term expected returns get squeezed, that also squeezes those returns. So when you're at a, almost a zero interest rate, low in the United States, a zero interest rate in Europe, and a zero interest rate in uh, Japan, which are the main reserve currencies, and that that has all been supported by uh, quantitative easing beyond that, I think we've squeezed out a lot of assets. I think the world, by and large, is leverage long, um, meaning um, assets, let's say, the buying of um, um, debt, corporate debt, Uh, One of the biggest um, sources of um, returns on assets was the fact that the interest rate was low relative to the return on equity. And so there's been a lot of buybacks, a lot of mergers and acquisition, in other words, by companies buying companies and and bidding that up. And that's been a factor. And that's also um, then you had the tax boost, because if you lower corporate tax rates, uh, companies are worth more. All of those things have pushed those asset prices up to levels where it's difficult to see how you can squeeze that. With and so you can't get the rate structure down much, and which is the wind to the back. And you can't. Uh, so all of that means I think you've squeezed out a lot.
3: So so going forward from here, if you're an investor, does that mean you just have to prepare for um, lower expected returns in the future, or? Is there a place where you can hide? No, I think like like crypto. (laughs)
2: Um, I think uh, if you're an average investor, I think that you again there's alpha and there's beta. Um, You have to prepare for lower expected returns in the future Uh, because if you take all these obligations, I'm talking to some extent about the debt obligations, but there are unfunded pension obligations, Mm -hmm. there are also healthcare obligations. There's a lot of obligations and um essentially a lower real interest rate and therefore lower asset returns assets are held by those who are more rich relative to that i think all of those things are going to pull that you can expect lower returns and you can expect probably more taxes those in longer term so that's going to be the nature of the beast as far as and how to deal with it um i think most People should not be making tactical movements in and out of the markets to produce alpha. I think that's difficult. So I think that they have to know how to balance their accounts. That's why when I refer to what we call all weather, what's risk parity, how do you balance those things? You have to have a balanced portfolio unless you're going to be able to, you know, concentration is a risky thing. And then or you have to be able to time markets. And, of course, that's that's a difficult
3: thing, too. I saw a bunch of hands up. Um, why don't we come down to the front row over here with this uh, woman?
1: Thank you Hi, Ray. So my Hi. question is actually more about management because I really think that's been that's what my takeaway was from principles, which is what an incredible and strange culture you've built at Bridgewater. and I love your advice you know that to deal with not knowing that's such a hard problem for most people. people are, are uncomfortable to admitting, I, I don't know. So how do you teach someone who is either resistant to admitting, I don't know, or worse yet, who is not aware of how much he or she doesn't know?
2: Well, one of the best, uh, it, it, I was going to just say, play the markets and then you'll realize how difficult it is to be confident. <laughs> That's a, But honestly, what happens is, it, to make the transformation, um, you have to explain that to them in a way where, let's go through this. Like if I was to say, um, do you want to know what your weaknesses are? Do you want to know what I think? Do you want to know, be able to tell me what you think? Do you want to have disagreement when we're disagreement? Do you want to have thoughtful disagreement? Because if there's disagreement, there's some chance it may be you that's wrong rather than the other person intellectually you can get people there not all people but intellectually you can by and large say you're struggling with yourself really because there's this intellectual self that said yeah i'd like to know my weaknesses i know everybody has strengths and weaknesses i can develop i'd like to have that honest relationship and then you will once you intellectually get that you want it then you're going to encounter your emotional barriers to it, and the emotional barriers are either your ego barrier that you know that you're going to have to get over, or your blind spot barrier. I mean, in other words, by ego barrier means um, you somehow feel challenged or whatever. You feel bad about not knowing. Feel good about not knowing and curiosity. If I can get you to see that world that way intellectually, you'll you'll want it. And then the blindness barrier is you can be really curious but minds different people's minds work differently they see things some people see the big picture some people see details and so on and when you come to see that different people see things differently and you could when you see things through others eyes that you can see in three dimensions in color rather than seeing in this one flat dimension black and white, and you can do much better. If you get them to intellectually understand that and say, we're going to go through this in a a way where there's trust where there's meaningful relationships, but you can get trust because you can get to see things for yourself. Everything's transparent. We'll talk about it and so on. Then you get people to want to be that way. But they have to start to realize intellectually that it's really a good way of being. It builds better work results. It builds better relationships. And that's a tremendous power to get to the right answer and also get the rewards of good work and good relationships. They have to go through that, and then they have to go through the experience. And then when you take them through the experiences, you have to help them through that experiences, because some of that is diff- different. I think it's also how we teach kids, and we teach our, in our own environment that, you know, oh, did you get the great grade in, the, in there? And it's all kind of, do you know? And the life is not like this life when you leave school is not like did you get the great grade life s- starts succeeding when you start to fail when and okay and and then it's the learning that comes from those failures that produces it so i think that whole intellectually getting that being that way is healthy in all of those respects and then once you have that in their mind and they experience it, you help them through that. Then they know they're experiencing it. And that's what works for us to help people make that transition.
3: Thank you. Uh, how about right mm-hmm. over here? Other uh, way. This way? Up. Oh, got it. Uh, hi, Ray. Uh, one of my favorite shows is this show called Billions. And some people have said that the character, Bobby Axelrod, in his office is somewhat based on you. Have you ever seen the show? Is there
2: any truth to that? Or what do you think of that? I, I, I have no you, you speak to those guys. I have no idea whether it's true. I, I, um, I watched three episodes out of curiosity. Um, I thought it was entertaining. And then I you know, just didn't have the chance to pursue it. So I don't have much to add. You know, I guess they got to ask the writers.
3: you read the book that you told about, Paul, uh, Paul Kennedy, the book, that I accidentally read that book. One of that book, the message I take from that book is that every great power is because they're overleveraged. They borrow too much debt. The message, one of the messages I forget from the book is, now the US really looks like our oh, deficit is getting bigger and bigger. Do you see where we are? That's where we're going. And then what's the implication
1: to the currency of the US dollar?
3: So in the Paul Kennedy book, overleveraged is the US overleveraged relative to historical companies?
1: Yeah.
2: So there are a number of lessons. One of those is, um, and it could take th- the arc, by the way, typically is 200 years, 250 years. So the arc is quite long. Um, and it, by the way, it starts off with technological advances that raises GDP and then makes them very competitive in the world markets, like um, the Dutch was the reserve currency before the British Empire and ours. And then what happens is later in the cycle, there is that desire to push it and leverage. Um, usually, it's a matter of they they become global. They have global trade routes. When they travel around, they're carrying their currency. Then people then use that currency. That's what they pay in. That's what they lend in. Um, uh, um, Holland, essentially Amsterdam, uh, became half of world trade at that time. And it became very rich because of those things. And they, the world used that reserve currency. So there was borrowing and lending. And then the cycle goes that, of course, when you have a reserve currency, others want to save in it because what the choice is their local currency and so on. And they, they believe that that's the thing to save in. And when they're saving in it, that means that there's borrowing in it by that country, and they usually overextend. And as a result of overextending, they, make the, they get the debt problems that you're dealing with, and then it becomes a challenge. I think the United States is following that kind of an arc, and we are overextending, and that we're operating in this world reserve currency, uh, uh, fiat currency type of system. And so if you were to take you know, let's say years in the future, I think that the role of the US dollar will diminish. That and the returns on US dollars, will ret- US dollar denominated debt, I think will uh, suffer for the reasons that we're talking about here. And then I think then you'll see the emergence of other currencies. What those currencies will be, exactly how that'll work, is an interesting question. Um, so I, that's a too big of a topic to get into and answering answer in, your, uh, in this brief couple of minutes. But I would say that that becomes an issue and that probably over the next five and ten years, we're going to see that play more of a role.
3: Ray, Ray given in Kennedy's book, each of the great powers became global powers by expanding beyond their borders, what do you make of the current deglobalization that seems to be taking place in the United States, in the UK, and elsewhere.
2: Well, I think we're t- you're talking about there are two different things. In those cases, there wasn't so much the globalization. There was the globalization of those countries, right? Just like the globalization of China, mm-hmm. we're now seeing the One Belt One Road. Right. We're seeing investments all around the world. That's that's carrying that forward. With that, you will see more lending in. Uh, uh, RMB. you will see uh, more chinese banks in the world and so on and so forth and that will expand very very analogous regarding globalization which is the idea of producing it one place and selling it someplace else in the most efficient way is that there's not much trade barriers so that you can do that or the globalization of capital markets the mm-hmm. free flow of money into and out of countries and all of that um, i think that that's uh, peaked, and that uh, we're now in an environment in which we'll go to a you know more of a deglobalization kind of environment and because of this somewhat threatening environment, the perceived um, worry that you could have a conflict, I think that that creates a force that reinforces the deglobalization because let's say if you're going to produce something, If you're producing things in China that we need in the United States, by way of example, Mm -hmm. there might be a concern about doing that. So if you're producing PCs, you might say, and I need PCs here, there might be a pressure to go de-globalization that sort of feeds on itself i think that we're seeing those kinds of pressures i think the same thing is true that that could happen with capital flows um you know if um, chinese investors are more concerned that you could have a conflict there could be more sanctions of investments in the united states so they're less inclined to invest in the united states and so on so those issues i think um i think we're more moving more toward uh, de-globalization and almost independent self-sufficiency is probably the more the direction.
3: And we have time for one last question. Let's go right over here.
0: Uh, I have two questions regarding China. The first one is, where do you see China's debt situation today? And the
1: second being, given that China has started to increase the amount of stimulus, is that an area that you would potentially increase an investment in in this
0: uh, at this point in time? Uh,
2: like I said, applying the template to China, um, Ch- Chinese debt is mostly in their local currency. The amount of foreign currency denominated debt for China is very small. Okay, so now you're dealing mostly with an internal issue. And also the lenders to China are within uh, their system. And the like I said, the capacity to um, handle a debt crisis by spreading it out in one way or another um, is quite large. Um, they have the expertise uh, to know how to do that, to do that spreading it out. So um, I think that when you look at debt cycles, uh, I'm, there would, four cases in which I know the United States defaulted, had major debt crises and won't rattle them all off and that they were able to be managed. The lesson I gave, for example, of the 2000, excuse me, the um, 1980, 82 debt crisis that I was so wrong about, was the ability to spread that out and lower interest rates at the same time. China has that ability. I think everybody's focused in on that and, and too focused in on that, and they're not focused in on their productivity growth and how they're making changes in terms of that productivity growth. I think, um, you know, like a, a bad year of growth um, will be probably twice as good as a good year of growth from us in terms of that, pro- that whole productivity thing. And if you look at indicators of productivity over a period of time, quality of education, quality of infrastructure, those kinds of things, you know, they have the reasons to continue to have high productivity. So to me, it looks like one of those cycles, their version of a cycle to do a debt restructuring, and, and a debt organization, they're doing it on a proactive basis before the cycle has actually caused a crisis. In, in most of the other cases, like in our financial two thousand eight financial crisis, we had the crisis, and then you have reactive. They're doing proactive. So I'm very um, I'm not worried about the debt crisis in in. China or the debt situation in China. And I'm, you know, I believe that it's it's going to be a very good place for long-term investing. I think it has to be an important part of everybody's portfolio. It's just opening up to foreign investors. It's a different kind of place. So you have to get to know it. But, you know, I'm basically bullish on it. I won't get into the particulars of what particular investments I would make there, though.
3: So, That is all we have time for. I want to thank Ray for being so generous with his time. Let's give him a nice round of applause. Thank you, Barry. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You're going to hang around a little bit and sign some books for people. Is that right?
0: Sure, if you want to. Fantastic.
3: So stick around.
0: Ray will sign some books. And thank you so much for coming. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it.